Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm so delighted to be sitting here with Kali Fajardo Anstein. Hi, Maris. It's Hi. I'm so excited Yay. to be here. Hey. Um, the, the National Book Awards were um, two nights ago. Yeah. And you were nominated for fiction. Yeah. So it's been it's been a bit of a ride. It, it has been. It's been a wild, beautiful, surreal, magical dream. And so your it's your debut story collection, yes. Yes. It's called Sabrina and Karina. And you also have a novel in progress. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, and that should be out in 2021. And it's it's sort of like the great grandmother generation of the women in Sabrina and Karina. It's a historical novel that looks at Denver in the 1930s, mixed race relations, Chicana's lives then, and also Wild West shows. Ooh, Wild yeah, West shows yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because I, 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 if you had told me that this is a historical precursor to this this collection, yes. You write about Denver in such an evocative way, and you write about people in Denver who don't get written about quite so often. Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the reasons I became a writer is to provide representation, which is sort of strange because I think writers who come from a dominant background don't necessarily have that, like, oh, I have to provide us with some books. Right. Um, but I grew up as a huge reader. I started working in a bookstore by the time I was 15 years old. Ooh, where was that? At Westside Books in Denver. Yeah. And I, I sold rare, new, and antiquarian books. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so The antiquarian as a as a teenager is like a... I know. It's, there should be a teen movie about that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> only we'll watch it. Okay. <laughs> um, Perfect. I remember I had a customer come in one day and I, I said, I want to, you know, I want to be a novelist someday. And that's why I work at the bookstore. And he said, why... What could you possibly add to all these thousands of volumes that hasn't been written? Guess what? And I was like, uh, books about my people because we're not in very many books at all. And I just, I really want to commit my entire career at this point to just providing us with books and representation forward and back in time and in the present. I just want more books and I want more people coming with me and writing these stories. I love that. So, so you are... Your family is from Denver. Yes, yes. So my 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 mother's side mm-hmm. has been in Colorado since the beginning of time. We can trace our records down to the pueblos in northern New Mexico, and it was always sort of an interesting thing. You know, growing up, people would ask what I am a lot, mm-hmm. and I'd have to get into that conversation. They say, "Oh, well, are you Mexican? Are you are you Native? Are you Asian? Are you white?" You know, it was just constantly being asked those things. And when I'd say, no, we're just, we're people who are from Colorado. We're, we're right, deeply, right. deeply Native from here. Colorado. Yeah. Yes. And like, it's just, it, I realize that there's just sort of this blank space in history for a lot of people. They sure. don't, they don't know about our state sure. and our pre-statehood and how part of Colorado was Mexico. And mm-hmm. it's just a fascinating history. And I was sick of being overlooked. Yeah. And I also love, you know, Julia Phillips was on this podcast and she recommended your book and you both more than I mean in, in this year you were really standouts in terms of creating a sense of place that might not be familiar to your average American reader. Yeah, place has always been so important to me. Um, you know, I think one is because of my roots, they run so deep, but also the kinds of works that I'm drawn to are very atmospheric. Yeah. So I remember, you know, reading Alice Monroe for the first time or reading Edward P. Jones, Lost in the City, mm-hmm. and just thinking, oh my gosh, like I want to do this for Denver too. I want to create um, a fictional space where people can experience 
a place, you know, through my perspective. And that's a perspective that's just not given out very, very often. Yeah. And and even like, like, you capture the weather of Denver. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, right. Sometimes it's sunny and it's it's not all ski slopes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a big joke. It's like in Colorado, in Denver in particular, like it can be really sunny one minute and then it's like hailing on you and snowing in two seconds and then it's cleared out. But yeah, I love writing about landscape. It just, it feels so lush and I love how the language feels in my mouth when I'm working on it. Um, and it just feels really sensual, our landscape. So I, I enjoy it. And I, I feel like, it's a good metaphor for the story collection to say that it can be sunny one moment and then <laughs> start pouring. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have some darkness in this book quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, and I think, again, like that's that's what I was drawn to. Yes. I, I grew up reading Flannery O'Connor. I think that was mm-hmm. one of the first times I was like, I want to be a writer, you know, when Aww. I read A Good Man is Hard to Find. But I, I do come from a community that is, you know, struggling with issues of generational trauma, mm-hmm. uh, generational poverty. Mm-hmm. And so this, to me, it's not that dark. It's just reality. And it's right. what a lot of women in my community have gone through. And so I think a lot of the violence against women in this book, a lot of the deaths, um, all of that, you know, those are things that I've witnessed and seen in my own life and that I brought to the page. Um, because I think a lot of times, too, these kinds of violences are just looked over. Yeah. And that makes, you know, th- those who are experiencing it feel even more isolated and alone. Um, I, I, th- in the story, Tomi, the main character, says something like, I am damaged. And she had, in in a moment where I feel like the sun came out for a second, um, her brother says, it's not you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Cole, I love, I love her. <laughs> she came Cole. to me. You know, it's funny. I was like living in Laramie, Wyoming, and I had to drive in the, this foggy highway one day. And I was so scared. And I had to pull over and I was shaking. And this character just started like speaking. I was talking to myself. And it was Cole from Tommy. And that's how I met her. <laughs> but, I love that. Um, she's such an interesting character because she has all these past crimes. But at the very beginning of the story, she's like, look, I stole from my baby nephew. I drove a car into an elderly couple's picture window when I was drunk. Like, I was an alcoholic. I did all these bad things. And I think she's really trying to atone for herself throughout that whole story. Um, and, it's yeah, it is interesting that even though she has that that need for atonement society doesn't like generally let her do it yeah and it's like you capture a way that i think many women have felt like oh this is me i ask for trouble i trouble finds me that kind of thing and it's like well maybe but there's this systemic thing that's been happening for decades centuries and and maybe that's something to consider too yeah no, there's a line in Sabrina and Karina. Um, so in the title story, Sabrina Sabrina has been strangled to death at the start of the story. And her cousin Karina, who's a makeup artist, has been asked by the family if she'll apply the makeup for the funeral on the body of Sabrina. And there's a line in there where Carlos, the mortuary director, says, you know, these pretty girls, they get themselves into such ugly situations. And those are sentiments I heard my whole life, oh. you know, like she was asking for it. It's her problem. She didn't leave the bar when she should have, or she really hung out with a wild crew. Right. You know, all this victim blaming. And I really, I wanted to go inside of that and explore that emotion because mm-hmm. it also, it's such, it makes you feel so much powerlessness. Yeah. And I wanted to give these characters power and to take that back for them. 
And even just the beginning of the story is so striking because Karina is told she was strangled. It's and it feels inevitable. Yeah. So <laughs> when I wrote that, one of my professors he said, "This is your Sonny's Blues." You know? Did you know that? And I was like, "No, <laughs> there's no way." You know? <laughs> um, but I, yeah, she's sort of a tragic character, and she's heading that way. Um, and all the flashbacks, everything that happens in the past in that story. But I think that's really why I wanted to front load what ultimately happens to her at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because it's not, you know, it's not what happened to her, it's how it happened to her. Right. And I want, I want the reader to experience what does it feel like to lose somebody piece by piece over a span of, you know, 20 something years. Right, right, right. And then in a later story, she's mentioned in passing, Sabrina. Um, they're at the graveyard. Yeah, in Galapago. In Galapago. Yeah. And I hadn't quite considered that these characters live in the same world, in the same place. Yeah, so they, they definitely do. They probably think <laughs> are all cousins. <laughs> like, they see each other at the grocery store, like, what up? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean... So the way that my life worked in Denver growing up is it was just incredible this web of people we were related to through my, you know, the elders generation, um, my own generation. But I remember I used to get a ride to college from my neighbor. And one day his, his mom picked us up for some reason and she, she asked my, about my last name and I told her, Oh, you know, that comes from my great grandfather, Alfonso. And she said, was Alfonso married to a woman named Esther? And I said, yeah. And she said, that's my sister's godparents. And just like the idea that I live next door to this guy and he's been giving me rides around town. I was like, what? You know, this is, it's incredible. But it's like these old Latino roots in Colorado. Mm -hmm. They run so deep and they actually, they, they run a lot deeper than I think on the surface too, because in some ways we've lost our connections to each other. It only comes about in these accidents. We find out, oh my gosh, my great grandma knew your auntie was like there with her right. when she was a baby. And, and you talk a lot about the gentrification of the city and how it's harder to remain an intact community when when uh, other people move in and start calling your neighborhood something different. Yeah, definitely. So Denver's got this sort of like it's almost like a place based schizophrenia right now. Like they don't they don't know who they are. They don't know what the names of the um, the towns are called and the sections of the city. And you know these real estate agents and these developers they just right. name things like right. low high, high high. <laughs> like I have no <laughs> idea what it, what these things are called, but I do know the old names and what we called them. And really they had to do with you know West Side, North Side, South right. Side. <laughs> We, right. didn't, we didn't have these like buzzwords for them. That's so funny. And and I hadn't even considered um, until I read um, Ghost Sickness that, yeah, the tech world really has come into Denver quite a bit. Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed is like I – I can't get hired for any jobs in my own city. You know, I wasn't trained for those kinds of jobs. Right. And I think that's where a lot of this displacement is coming from, that those of us who are from Colorado, who've been there for generations, we didn't know about these things. We weren't studying that in school. And so they're bringing in all these people from out of state with all this money. And then that's part of the reason why we're pushed out. Right. Um, and in that story, it's it's the tech boom, but it's also the legalization of weed. So it's the great green rush. <laughs> So yeah, after the weed became legal, oh, it was like, whoa. Had, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and our whole city smells like pot, like all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so there's, yeah, so there's a weed tourism kind of. Yeah. And it's, well, there's people like weed is their religion. Like they've moved right, to Denver right, because right. They, they love it so much, which is fine. Like, you know, worship what you want to worship. <laughs> <laughs> and you've created this, this place, yes, called Saguarita? Yes, yeah, Saguarita. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry for my terrible <laughs> accent. Well, there's, there's no way you would know because it's like pronounced in my mind. In my <laughs> okay, good. That makes me feel a little better. Um, tell me about creating a fictional place within the place where you grew up and what you know. Yeah. So, okay. I so I'm from Denver and I know every street corner. I know you know every stoplight, every church, all that. But. The place that my ancestors left in the southern portion of the state, I don't know as well, mm -hmm. because that was the place of story and myth in my family. Mm -hmm. And when I started working on these stories, none of this was really intentional in the beginning. It was, I was a baby. I was like 20 years old when I started this book. And I just was like following my instinct a lot. But after I noticed that I was working in this sort of fictional realm, I thought, well, I don't know that place like I know Denver. So I need to be respectful and I need to give mm. myself more room to be able to imagine. And I think it's also allowed me to touch base with the place that I come from. And the place that I come from is it's no longer real. I mean, I can't sure. I can't go back to a specific town. I can't touch it. But what I've done in Sewarita is I can always go back and I can I can find out where I come from. And I love I love my characters who live in the town versus the characters who live in the city. They're, yes. they're, they're just like Sierra in Sugar Babies. Like she's so someday she's moving to Denver, that little girl. But oh, absolutely. <laughs> right now she's a small town girl. <laughs> I want to talk about the story Sisters because I, I read elsewhere that it was based on your family. Yeah. And it it's set in in the 1950s. And, and so that seems like is that your novel will be yes. related to that? So, yeah. So Sisters, Sisters was sort of um, – it's an inherited story. It's inherited trauma. Um, my great-grandmother's sister was blinded. And I I heard that story all the time growing up from different family members, and I felt like I could really see my Auntie Dodie. And I remember I was in my apartment in Laramie, Wyoming, and this voice just started coming through. And I said, oh, I really have to follow this. And I actually made a voice memo, and when I played it back, it didn't sound like me, and it really scared oh, me. Wow. It, yeah, it really scared me. Um, but that story was the most difficult story to write in the book um, just because of the violence and just, you know, looking at it head on. Um, I was encouraged actually to remove it from the collection um, because it's so violent. And I, I had to come up with reasoning like, why do I want people to look at this? Mm -hmm. Like, why do I want you to know what happened? But, you know, in my family, that event rippled out for generations sure. and there was no really justice. And so I think being able to tell the story, is, it's not justice by any means, but it's a way to create a little bit more healing. Um, and so the characters in the novel, they're living in the 1930s, okay. um, but they, so they're, they're the generation actually behind the generation in the 1950s. Um, but I love working in a historical realm. You're good at it. Oh, like it's thank really, you. I mean, it's really evocative of a, of a time and an era. Thank you. And I, I love researching. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, um, it's just so pleasurable to look through old newspapers and look at old dresses and touch things. And, you know, that, that's like, I wanted to be a librarian in another world. <laughs> and so I think being able to research and write historical fiction is sort of combining it. That's wonderful. And I like calling it historical fiction, even though I know that's a genre term, but I want Chicanas to be able to imagine themselves in the past as well as into 
the future. Absolutely. <laughs> the F not. Yeah. Um, Tell me about the ordering of the stories in the collection. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a big short story fan, and you know I went through and I analyzed how all these different collections were put together, mm-hmm. and I also am a huge music fan. So what I ended up doing when we were doing the final ordering, I went on my Facebook and I pulled the people and I said, "Give me some of the best ordered albums that you know of." Oh yeah, and I just sat there and I listened to tons of records and I, I thought about the ways that they were put together. People were throwing out like Stevie Wonder and Bob Dylan and the Clash. And it was so cool to like see you can build something up and then bring it down. Um, so yeah, I really played with tone and theme, and I wanted I didn't want all the ballads, you know, together that right, kind of thing. Right, like, right. To me, Sisters is a ballad. Sabrina Karina's a ballad, right. and Tommy and Sugar Babies have a little bit more of a poppy vibe. They so do yeah. <laughs> so I really think about the musicality of a short story collection. I love that. <laughs> Tell me about. What else you've been reading? Yeah, so I just finished um, "Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls" oh, by Kira Madden. Yeah, and I—it's so funny. So I was leaving the Portland Book Festival, and I saw her book just like someone had left it in the lobby, and I was like, ah, "I'm gonna do this. I'm taking this book." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I just devoured it, and I just—it made me feel a lot less lonely in some of the things that I experienced in my own life. And I thought her bravery to tell the story, especially as it relates to your parents and being able to openly put that on the page. And yeah, I just, I I really commend her for that. And it's a beautiful book. And it's so cinematic. I go on, I want to like watch the movie of like these huge mansion kid parties. And like, um, yeah, so I'm really, I'm really excited about that. Um, and I also just read Feed by Tommy Pico. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I love, I hadn't seen Tommy perform until this year. And oh. when I saw him, I was so inspired and so blown away. Um, but Feed, I thought, you know, it's, it's just so wonderful the way that he, he really plays with language and again, music. Uh, there's so That's much music. That's true. There is a lot of music in there. Yeah. And I don't read enough poetry. No, I think I read a lot of poetry, and I, I don't know if that's unusual for fiction writers, but I, I definitely think we always need to be reading poetry. I think that's true. Yeah, but I yeah I've been reading a lot of old classics too because yeah. uh, I did a piece in Bustle on the house on Mango Street, and oh. I, I haven't read it since I was a teenager. And Sandra Cisneros is like one of my idols, and she gave you a beautiful blur. Yeah, I cried. Oh, I cried that's amazing. When I got it, um, but the house on Mango Street, when I reread it this time. It's so much darker than I remember. And there's, you know, there's sexual assault. There's all these things that just kind of get brushed over in the classroom sometimes. Sure. And I'm and I'm really excited to know that that, that book is so, like, awesomely heavy. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. And then I, re- I also just reread um, In the Time of the Butterflies because I interviewed Julia Alvarez. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and it was so wonderful. But again, In the Time of the Butterflies, I was like, this is so much heavier than I remember. Um, I, I just love how stories can work on multiple different levels as you age. Too. Right. Yeah. So that's what I've been reading. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kali. It was so lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Maris. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.